he looks like Greg from accounting, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. I'm your host, Ian McCord. To paraphrase an old Smith song, Panic on the Streets of Munich, Panic on the Streets of Dortmund, I wonder to myself, could Jose get sacked this season? Yep. This week's podcast comes with a big black and white sticker that reads Parental Advisory Explicit Worry. And we're a bag of nerves for Bayern, Thomas Tuckle, and Eric Bristow's punditry career. Um, actually, maybe not Eric Bristow's punditry career. Here to talk about all of that and in order of importance is Talking Football's Matt Herman. Number one, right here. Nico Durbin. Hey guys. And Paddy Higgs. That was always coming. It was always yeah. coming. The latter two, of course, <laughs> integral members of One Football's crack commando, One Football newsroom team. Paddy being the face to Nico's howling mad Murdoch. <laughs> Some of the stuff you say, I just don't know what it means. <laughs> it just goes, you weren't a fan of the A team when you were younger? Nah, nah. What? Nah. You are joking. Yeah, nah. You didn't watch the A team? Nah, I didn't watch the A team. I don't know. Who did you say before? Some. Bud Bristow, dude. Eric Bristow. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, who's that? Who's that fella? Wait, you don't you don't read the news either? Oh boy. Oh uh, no, no. Well, let's not go into that yeah. one. Now. That's yeah, a bit touchy. Did they have the A team in Germany? They did. Yeah. Did you watch it? No. You were too busy watching King of Queens. Weren't you? I was too busy watching King of Queens. Yeah. <laughs> God, he's a few, he's a few years younger. Sometimes you forget when I was born. Ian, I do. I do. And I mean, me, actually, I'm I'm younger than you too. You're not that much younger. Sizably enough. Matt, save this, save oh, yeah. this intro here. You I were an A-team the A-team fan. the first time around. That tells you a little bit about my age. <laughs> Me too. I used to have A-team um, wallpaper. Ooh, I think I had an A-team lunchbox at one point. That's pretty neat. Also, Dick Benedict, once, this is of no interest to anybody else but myself and Matt, but Dick Benedict, who played face, once sure. came to my university. Ooh. Honestly, it was the highlight of my whole my whole four years in, in Dublin. Just for kicks, or did he uh, give a speech? About, he, he gave uh, a, he gave rocketry? a speech. No, he gave a speech to one of the societies, and the whole auditorium, which was packed with about six hundred people, went absolutely wild for him. They were singing the A tune, uh, the A team theme tune, as he came <laughs> in, banging on the desks. And some girl got up and asked him for a kiss. He gave her a kiss. The place went wow, went totally wild. It's my running with Dick Benedict. (laughs) (laughs) They do like a drink there, don't they? They do. Uh, Before we wade knee deep into football's murky waters, here's a quick plea to our listeners. Could you please, please, please go to iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, rate the podcast, and leave plenty of comments to let us know what you think. It really would mean a huge amount to us. Now, last weekend saw Leipzig solidify their place at the top of the Bundesliga. That means they're three ahead of second place Bayern Munich and a whopping nine points ahead of seven placed Borussia Dortmund. Neither set of fans can be too happy about that. But let's start with Bayern and let's start with the big question, Nico. How long before Carlo Ancelotti gets the sack? I don't think that he'll be sacked this season. That that was tongue in cheek a little huh? bit, but there. Yeah, go on. Yeah, no, he he won't be he won't be sacked during the season. Um, we'll see at the end of the year. Um, you don't win any titles in October or November or December, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so. You know, there's a lot. There's a lot of change um, in Munich with Uli Hoeneß back at the top, um, etc. So they have some patience. But you know, if he doesn't win two titles this year, then he won't be the coach next year. Zay Roberto, everybody remembers Zay Roberto. Mm-hmm. He's a, he's called Ancelotti the wrong choice for the club. You think so, Paddy? 
Yeah, I think I agree with Nico. Um, I think Bayern are going to take a little bit of time under Ancelotti. It's a completely different system, a completely different relationship that that coach has with their players than that Guardiola did. Um, and that's going to take a little bit of time. Um, I'm, I don't have any concerns about Ancelotti. I think by the end of the season, we'll, we'll almost have forgotten we were talking about this sort of stuff. I See, I've kind of changed my mind about that. Um, earlier, yes, nice bit of controversy yeah, really. here. I mean, earlier, I was, I was pretty ready to poo-poo the narrative that... Um, Carlo Ancelotti was a little bit too relaxed. Um, but I do see a marked change in, in not only the way Bayern play, but the way others play Bayern. I mean, it used to be under Pep and to a great degree the last couple of years of, of Heinkes that teams went to play Bayern and they looked scared. They thought they couldn't take points off of Bayern. And now so many teams have taken points off Bayern that I don't. I think any top half side in the Bundesliga goes into a Bayern game thinking they can get a draw if not a win, if they play their very best. I mean, it's too early for me to, to panic and say that, you know, he's ready to be fired because basically this is now just back to the point where Bayern are sort of a normal, very good team instead of a super team, which is basically what they were for the last four or five years. I mean, I think folks who have paid attention to the Bundesliga only the last five years tend to believe that the, the normal state of things is that Bayern just destroy everybody every year. And that's not really the case. I mean, up until a few years ago, Bayern would win about every other year. And I think we might be going back to that state of affairs. I think Matt makes a good point in the fact that they do feel a lot more human as a team, if that makes sense. Um, Nagelsmann from Hoffenheim said that, you know, when Bayern have the ball, it's, it's almost impossible to get it back. But when they don't have the ball, they're just a bit average, you know. So it, it is a different team. And, you know, one of Guardiola's main rules, I remember someone saying, I can't remember who it was, Thiago maybe, that when Bayern lost the ball under Guardiola, they had three seconds to get it back. You don't really sense that urgency anymore um, with, with, with under Ancelotti. I think there are also certain um, dynamics set free. Like if you transition from one coach to another, um, if you look at, Guardiola, like everything was about full control. Like he wanted to have full control over the players, full control over the opponent. Everything was planned into the tiniest detail. Whereas um, Ancelotti coming in after a more or less disappointing uh, Euros for many of the players, you know, uh, coming in, he, he tends to have a longer leash um, and some other philosophies. And I think, you know, maybe the last, 5% are missing. They're not fresh enough in their heads. Maybe the fitness is not the same way it used to be after the years uh, Guardiola and they just let go a little bit. Not consciously, but they're not getting younger either. I mean, look at the players who basically built the core of the team. We can talk Philipp Lahm, we can talk uh, Robin Ribéry, um, Thomas Müller. Pff, I don't know when he had the last two or three consecutive weeks where everybody was like, Jesus, Müller is killing it at the moment. That's a while ago as well. I think you, that you mentioned the squad is interesting because it's one of the things I was thinking about beforehand. Lam, as you said, and, and I really hate to say this, is looking past his best. I mean, he's already discussed to be the next uh, sport. manager, sport, sport director, mm -hmm. um, etc. People yeah. say he should just cut, like, end his career and, and do this after the season. So basically, similar to what he did in the national team, mm -hmm. right? Yes, he wants to stop his career on, on when he's still on top of it. Um, but I think he can actually, he's young enough to play a couple of uh, good years and, and be the, the first choice um, side back for Bayern Munich. Elsewhere though, Alaba has been linked to a move with um, 
with Man United and quite frankly in the form he's in. I think a lot of fans might say so long. Mats Hummels is looking like a lost child in an oversized supermarket. And there's other problems within the squad, as we were saying. There's no long-term replacements for Robin or Ribéry. Um, Costa, out of form. Coman, inconsistent. And Karl-Heinz Rummenigge is slagging off one of his best players in, in public. It's it's all a bit of a mess. Yeah, I, I disagree a little bit with Hummels. Um, he struggled a lot in the beginning. But I think in recent weeks, he was still um, the best in the defense forum by Munich. Um, Boateng, yeah, of course, there's the debate now where Rummenigge says, well, he should uh, maybe not prioritize his lifestyle um, appointments, etc., and focus on the pitch. Whereas Boateng says, listen, I'm one of the best, if not the best uh, central defender in the world. Um, I did it the last year. I can do it. You know, don't you worry about me. So... I think the the very fact that they're speaking about it in public um, shows that they're not quite nervous yet, but they can they feel they sense that not everything is going the way it used to, and the table shows that as well. I also get the sense, and, and this has to do something with the internal politics of Bayern Munich, is that um, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge and Uli Hoeneß for many many years have played a sort of good cop bad cop routine, in which um, you know. Karl-Heinz Rummenigge is the sort of stern bomb thrower, and he says inflammatory things about his own players, about other teams. Uli Hoeneß sometimes plays that role, but often is the guy who sort of takes the player aside and says, ah, it's all right, and sort of smooths things over. And I think this this might just be that, you know, Hoeneß is back, and they're, you know, they're ready to go <laughs> into their own role, old roles again. Well, Hoeneß is back, with 98.5% of the people voting for him, despite his questionable uh, tax ethics. I was telling you, I was telling Nico on the way over about this. I put out a tweet the other day, um, you know, saying it's it's incredible that ninety eight point five percent of the people voted for him despite his his record. And I got a serious amount of abuse from Bayern <laughs> fans about this, uh, wondering where I was when Messi failed to pay his taxes. Well, he he did go to jail for it. He did. Right? He paid his due. Um, he apologized in public and everything. Um, I am not trying to defend him either. I, I just think that he is... <laughs> he's really a role model for what a good club president um, should be um, the last of the last decade. Um, I still question if it's the right choice to bring him back. Um, I don't know if, that, if that's forward-looking enough. Um, but still, I do understand that the uh, members of Bayern Munich did vote yes for Uli Hoeneß. What's the solution for for all of this for for Ancelotti and for Munich? You know, it would be it would be easier if Guardiola would be still there, and they might be second of the league as well. You know, maybe just because what we said before, the players are a bit tired, etc. Now all that seems to be correlated with a new coach and so on. Um, I just think they have one or two years where they're not as dominant as they used to be. Um, you think it's like a, a kind of Guardiola hangover almost? It's it's a Guardiola hangover, I think. But Ancelotti will at the end um, win the league with Bayern Munich. I still think that. Maybe not the Champions League, but I do think he will win the league. Yeah, and it's just on a, on a final note, I think it's important to note that this is not a, a Klinsman uh, at Bayern now. This is an, an Ancelotti who the players will get behind and it might take time. This is not someone who's going to rock the boat um, with any radical ideas like Klinsman did when he came to Bayern. 
I think stability is probably what Bayern need. And, you know, maybe there is a bit of downtime in, in, in the hangover, but I think it's going to be fine in the end. Okay. Good old Bayern. Elsewhere in the Bundesliga, settled in seventh spot, as we said, uh, is Borussia Dortmund. Paddy, it was all good just a week ago. They'd beaten Bayern in a meaningful match for the first time in God knows how long. Uh, they were looking like a real decent side, strong, intelligent, and all that jazz. And then, boom, they're beaten by Frankfurt. Uh, I just want to read you a quote from, from Tuchel afterwards. Our performance as a whole was deficient. It began during training this week, and today it was a performance from the first to the last minute that merited no points. That's an extraordinary statement from Tuchel after the game, isn't it? Yeah, I think um, when he says that he saw it coming, if you had a look at that Ligia Vysor game, I mean, eight goals, everyone's talking about the eight, but what about the four that they conceded? So I think Dortmund fans have to get used to the idea that this is going to be a super inconsistent side to, to watch this season. It's good that Tuchel's come out and, and, and said that. I think sometimes some harsh words are needed, and in this case, it potentially was. You know, when they replaced... The, the key players that they had with largely with youth or, or perhaps a few sort of guys who had been on the fringes of, of bigger teams, um, then it was always going to take a bit of transition um, here. And I think that's what we're seeing with Dortmund, that inconsistency, beating Bayern one week and then losing to Bayern, uh, Frankfurt the next. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. This is a team that is in transition and to expect them to do anything more than to qualify for Champions League football next year, which I think they will, I think is too big an ask. I mean, on their best day, they can beat Bayern. But when teams come in with a game plan that uh, sort of plays to their weaknesses, which I say is probably central defense, they're missing uh, Ilkay Gundogan very, very much, um, especially in those losses against uh, Frankfurt and Leverkusen. I mean, Julian Weigel, who is a really nice player, but he can be marked out of a game, and he was in both of those games, and that really hurt hurt Dortmund. Yeah, I think I think Matt's right there. The, the tactics don't quite suit the squad yet, and I think um, Fatska said at the start of the season this was going to be a transition year. And I feel, to be honest, that a lot of this pressure, this talk of crisis, is very much external. It's media or it's us talking about you know what's happening at Dortmund. I have a feeling everything's apart from the performances, and, you know, and Tuchel will be having stern words about that. I think this overall pressure is something that hasn't affected the club internally at all. What about the um we we talk a lot about youth, but what about the big players, the kind of the more experienced ones, the Aubameyangs, the Goethe's, the Schürrles? Why aren't they stepping into the into the fold and, and taking a bit of responsibility here? I I don't remember last time when Andre Schürrle was the one leading a squad. So, I mean, he's a bit more experienced, right? But um, I I don't see him as a leader of the squad. Mario Goethe, I think he has days where he can be um, but he's also not consistent enough I mean he had some really tough years um, and he needs to you know play 20 games in a row um, to be on top of his game again and then you know the others Royce Aubameyang they're there for some for the magic you know they they make the difference um, but they're also not the ones making like the playmakers such as Ilkay Gundogan who who is missing etc so i i do agree it's on the central like the central midfield central defense where where there's the control uh, yeah and the, and the leadership aspect i think is a big deal um you know i mentioned Gundogan is probably the player on the pitch that they are missing the most but i think Hummels is ah. the player they're missing off the pitch by a lot i yeah. mean of their squad they do have experienced players they do have you know german internationals they have you know the two guys who linked up to win the world cup 
but they don't have anybody who actually, after a match, win or lose, wants to go and stand in front of the camera, talk to the Sky reporter, talk to the ARD reporter, and explain what happened, win or lose. They have a, a lot of guys who can kind of give some boilerplate, you know, BS quotes. But Hummels, <laughs> Hummels can really look at a game and speak, you know, from the heart, truthfully. And that was something that I think the team really liked to have a leader to do. And now they don't have that. I was watching Hummels on Sky after a Bayern game recently. His ability to analyze the game so soon afterwards is really incredible. Yeah. yeah. He was just dissecting it straight so away the with son that of a panel. coach. Ah, that's why. Yeah. And his brother is also uh, very good at dissecting games as well. Is that so? Well, he's a commentator. Isn't that right? He was a player. I think he was semi-professional or something like that. I didn't realize he was commentating at the moment. I think he's commentating on Dazzle. Yeah. That's okay. uh, yeah. I don't have Dazen. The zone. The zone. It is the zone. Did that plug come for free? Or we no, 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 no. no. <laughs> Snip that out. <laughs> no, but if you're out there, the zone. partnership. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you're out there, the zone, and you feel like sending any uh, free uh, accounts our way, we're open to it, is what I would say. But it, there's no suggestion that Tuckle is um, losing control of the players or anything like that. No, I would completely dismiss that at this stage, I think. To be honest, most people would have a lot of high regard for Thomas Tuchel, the coach, and um, I think his ideas can be a little bit rigid at times. And as a consequence, I mean, if you sat down, if you sat down twenty Dortmund fans and said, "Pick your, your starting eleven right now," you'd almost have probably eighteen different teams. And I think Tuchel is probably that versatility sometimes can can play against him a little bit, um, but I think he will be fine. At Dortmund, I, I have no feeling that that the you know the hierarchy of the club have any doubts about his position whatsoever. Okay, um, if the Dortmund board, Paddy, were to give you a call and say, "Mr. Higgs, we've been impressed with your analysis on the One Football mm. podcast," is there anything you would change right now? Is there anything you would change? I didn't know that question was coming. I might have prepared for it better. Um, I like I like a bit of yeah, that's fair enough. A little bit of spontaneity enough, in the podcast enough, enough. every once in a I while. I think probably my my biggest um, and and Matt sort of mentioned it before is that um, again with what I said about Tuchel with his his belief in his own tactics, they can it can occasionally border on arrogance. And I think some of the tactics he's picked this season, he's almost gone too far with the belief that it would work. And you mentioned Weigel before, and the way that he can get exposed when the when the team that, that Dortmund are playing against press in the right method and, and mark him out of it, and that will kill Dortmund in one sort of foul blow, if that makes sense. And I think there's a few times that he probably should have reacted to that or should have looked at that from a different point of view. And I think that would probably be the only thing I would change is that trying to convince Tuchel to be a bit more flexible if his tactics would be a wasted conversation as it is. But that would be my biggest criticism of it, at least so far. Anything anybody else would change, Nico, Matt? Mm. If you got the call, of course. If I got the call, of course. Um, see, yeah, I, I get your point. But at the same way, that's Thomas Tuchel. That's who you get. And, you know, he before he started, I'm pretty sure... Um, he told the board of Borussia Dortmund, listen, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it my way. And if we do it my way, this year is a year of transition maybe, but the year after, the players learned so much and are strong enough to play in the top three consecutively for over a couple of years and, and make the semifinals in the Champions League. I also think that... Um this year that he faces is a transitional year. He has lots and lots of new players. Um, who he probably wants to assess as the season goes on. But at some stage, I think he needs to create 
a bit stronger hierarchy in terms of who's playing where and and who's in what order because you know I, I can say generally Dortmund have about four or five players who are on the team sheet consistently and then it's a real rotating cast and you know they have three competitions to contend with and that's something important an option to have but I think it's begun to maybe hurt them that they don't have a certain automatic um movement quality to, to them that's one of the things that's vexing a lot of Dortmund fans at the moment is that rotation policy I've nothing more to say than that <laughs> well let's move on then yeah well, should we? well <clears throat> there was one question I had more was is it time to rule them out of the title race probably yeah, yeah, yeah okay yeah, I think that was a couple couple of weeks ago even with the the Dortmund um even with the victory over Bayern I don't think they had anything consistent wise that made us think that they were going to go the full journey Champions League race, they'll make that, will they? I would be confident, like Matt said, I would be the same as Matt, and I think they'll make that. Okay. Meanwhile, in Manchester, there is Josie Mourinho, and there is, according to this script at least, meant to be a crisis for Manchester United, but they went and ruined it on me last night with their quarter-final EFL Cup win. Messed it all up. Damn United. Matt, anyway, we'll, we'll chat about them anyway. Does the, let's say, does the win over West Ham signal the end of this crisis or was there even a crisis in the first place? Oof. Um, well, first of all, no, if, if, if the crisis exists, no, because the EFL Cup is, you know, so far down the list of priorities at, at any serious club. I mean, we are getting into that stage of the competition, the last eight, the last four, where people start to play their A-sides and it becomes a bit more meaningful. But, you know... It's hard to get too excited about it. The only thing that I really could say is that the emergence in the last couple of weeks of Henrik Mkhitaryan as you know a player that Jose Mourinho seems to now have belief in and seems to want to play is hugely encouraging. I think it was probably one of the biggest mistakes of his you know tenure at Man United so far not to rely on him a bit more. And you know some of the quotes that he he gave after the, the game last night about saying. You know, he, he's he's developing, he's adapting to the Premier League. And, you know, he, he did it against Feyenoord, but last night he did it against a proper, proper Premiership man, Premiership team. I mean, he was like basically feeding these these Brit reporters exactly the, the pudding that they want to hear that, you know, the passionate intensity of the Premier League is something special. Um, I think really what his big problem has been is is all the draws that he's gotten. I mean... It's good to draw against Arsenal and Liverpool. Mm -hmm. Those are strong teams. But to draw against Stoke and Burnley and West Ham in the league is not good enough. I mean, I, I, other than the Watford loss in the league, you can't really argue too much with the losses they've had uh, in the Premier League. So I would say they're underachieving, but it's not really crisis yet. Did you have something you wanted to say? <laughs> Actually... <laughs> Sorry, I was just listening and I just found it interesting. I was listening along and I didn't really think about it respond to any of that. Did oh, I'm so pleased. <laughs> did it looked like you had something to say there. Yeah, sorry. Mikatarian, of course, had, um, had two very had two assists last night. One of which, did everybody see this? Which one, the back heel? The back heel. Or the, back heel. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Ooh, yeah. that was sweet ass. Oh, what a surprise. A, a £45 million player can... You're back here. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, like, this should not come as a surprise. I mean, they, you know, he basically played his reserves last night. Struggled to get that out. He basically played his reserves last night and they did the job for him. But, I mean, these are no slouches, these guys. I mean, it was Schweinsteiger's 
ostensibly his debut under Mourinho. And, <laughs> All you know, four minutes. Yeah, he's, he's hardly a mug either. So, he got yeah. off a nice cracking yeah, shot exactly, towards the end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, contributed to the last goal. I mean, this Mkhitaryan thing shouldn't have taken as long as it did. I think Matt was right. And, you know, the drama and the intrigue that Mourinho likes to build around the treatment of his players can only be detrimental to some players. And an insular guy like Mkhitaryan would not have enjoyed this experience so far at United. So it is good, whatever you think about his, his um, departure from, from Dortmund, it is, it's actually good that he's getting some time, but it shouldn't be wholly surprising that he can pull off a nice back heel. So there's no chance of Mourinho getting sacked over the next couple of weeks? No, take a few more drink bottles to, to manage that, I think. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what really has, has damned Mourinho, not only because, you know, his, his antics get himself into trouble all the time, is that beyond some underwhelming results, I mean, all the narratives that have been sort of negative about this team have, been, have surrounded probably their three biggest name players, which is to say Zlatan, Paul Pogba, who they spent, you know, the world for in the summer and Wayne Rooney, who has been the sort of the face of the club for the past, you know, 10, 12 years or whatever. And, you know, fitting all three of those guys into the same team in an effective team is almost impossible. We've found at this point, I mean, you have, you know, one style of play, which plays to Pogba's strength, but then doesn't really have a, a the right place for uh, you know Ibrahimovic a four three three he's not necessarily a four three three striker, or you can play a four two three one which you know doesn't really play to Paul Pogba's strengths does to uh, you know Ibrahimovic probably is a good spot in the hole for uh, uh, Mkhitaryan who's sort of the fourth wheel in this 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 narrative, and he hasn't sorted that out and until he does and until the team starts winning it's going to be a real millstone for him. Nico, did you have anything to add there? <laughs> Let's leave it at that. <laughs> we, we can we can leave it like that. <laughs> Download One Football, the most comprehensive football app in the world. So this Saturday afternoon sees two of the biggest sides in the world come together for one of the most eagerly anticipated games of the year, El Clasico. On the line to talk about that is Nils Kern from RealTotal.de. Nils, since taking over as Real Madrid coach last season, Zinedine Zidane's La Liga stats are, quite frankly, astounding. 33 games, 27 wins, 5 draws, 1 defeat. Out of a possible 99 points available to him, Zidane has won 86 and to top that off, there's been 99 goals for and 27 against. So what's he doing different that Rafa Benitez wasn't doing? Oh, well, it's a tie from Spain. Um, yes, indeed. The numbers of Zinedine Zidane are quite incredible. And it's a fact. No coach ever started better in the first 30 games um, in La Liga than Zidane. So no Mourinho, Guardiola, not in the past like Munoz. Um, what's the difference? Well, um, at first, Real doesn't play perfect or doesn't try to play perfect with five goals winning or something but successful and with a little bit luck that's something they didn't have with Ancelotti neither and as a legend himself um, the players even look up to Zidane and listen to him it's not like um, when Benitez was there it's not a new style of play or something although Zidane has some several systems for the players, um, he, he unites the superstars to fight. He can motivate them and let players from the second world play too. But um, I think Sidan even benefits of the squad of Benitez. So um, the team now, after some months, knows how to play together. But it's the squad of Benitez which Sidan um, benefits from. The, the Real Madrid fans can be so demanding. How do they feel about their team winning but not playing so perfectly? Well, they're 
quite different opinions, of course. A lot of fans want to see Real Madrid winning every match with five or six goals, but that's not possible in those times anymore. And But there are even, for me, more intelligent fans who say the last years Madrid tried to play beautifully but lost the titles. And now Madrid plays more patient with not so big risks. And the, the club is okay with some draws too, and this is why Real Madrid is now w- without a loss in 32 matches. And um, this is this this is how you win leagues. This is how you win the championships. And I'm sure the fans who are grumping now will be or might be very happy at the end when no one talks anymore about a lucky two-one win over Gijón like uh, at the weekend. You were at his press conference on um, on Tuesday. What did he have to say for himself? Was he was he excited about the Clásico? <laughs> well, at first he quite refused every question about a Clásico, which is was quite a matter of respect for cultural Leonesa, which was uh, the opponent in Copa del Rey yesterday, where Real Madrid w- uh, has won six one. So he didn't really answer questions about Clásico. He just said they are concentrating on the cup match, which is quite normal, standard phrases. But um, I'd, I'd say that presses of Zizou are not that spectacular like uh, from Mourinho or Jurgen Klopp or something. So there weren't any interesting things um, to to look at the match. Any interesting team updates? Will, will Casimero be fit? Who's, who's going to take Bale's place? Yeah, there are some... Um, some things, of course, there are still injured players like Kroos, Morata, Coentrao, Danilo, and Bale might be out until April, so quite a very long time. Um, yeah, Casemiro is back. He, yesterday he had his, his comeback in the cup. Um, he still needs a little bit rhythm, but um, the rest of the squad is ready. They did, a lot of players um, had um, yeah pause yesterday, like Ronaldo, Ramos, Benzema, and so on. So, yeah, he, there are still 20 players available for Zidane. Given that it's been about uh, four years now without a league trophy to to boast about, is there a sense that Madrid are a bit more focused on on La Liga this season? Indeed. Um, I'd say after two Champions Leagues in three years, it's about time to focus on the league. And yes, they they are doing. Uh, Real Madrid uh, even gets points for matches where they don't play well. So with luck, which is... (laughs) Not a good thing, but um, that's something they didn't have the last seasons when they lost a lot of points in the first half of the season. And they were, they are always strong at the end of the season when they are yeah, getting closer to the semifinals in Champions League and so on. But now they are really trying to get a continuous season where they are yeah, collecting points uh, all the time and in contra- contrary to that Barcelona <laughs> doesn't do this and I yeah I, I even hear fans here more talking about the Liga title than about defending the Champions League title or even about uh, the triple so yes it's, it is about the championship uh, As for Barcelona uh, Pique was speaking on Monday and he said that the Clasco is more important for Barca than the Madrid he, he has a point there doesn't he? Well somehow yeah but somehow no a classical is not only about those three points, not about not just about those ninety minutes. It's about a lot of prestige. So hard to say for which uh, the match is more difficult. Of course, the Catalans who are who want the independence from Spain. Uh, there might be some political things, but uh, the match is important for both teams. And of course, if Barcelona loses, they are nine points behind. But uh, 
it's even about revenge somehow, because the last Clasico in March was a great match by Real Madrid. They were winning 2-1, so, yeah, you can say that, yeah, I can understand that Piquet said this. Will nine points be too much for, for Barca to catch up? Nine points don't mean anything. For example, in four, the season 14-15, Real was uh, sometimes four or six points ahead, but Barcelona won the league at the end. And last year, Barcelona was 12 points ahead of Real Madrid. And at the end, it was only one point left so that uh, Real would clinch the title away from Barcelona. And even in 24, uh, Real Madrid lost uh, uh, eight points to the later champions, Valencia. So in this league where there are two or three Clubs always fighting or cl- close at the hundred points. It's uh, not, it has nothing to say after fourteen matches if, if there would be nine points. Niels, what do you make of, of Barcelona's form and, and the the, um, the troubles that they're um, supposedly having? I'm not a Barcelona expert uh, or we at Real Madrid, Real Sotal, but I think it's somehow a change of attitude of the other teams, of their, their opponents in La Liga. In the last years, there weren't many teams to compete with Barcelona in the league, and everybody hoped only to get two or three goals against them. Mm, now there are um, a lot of teams who really set Barcelona under pressure, who... Um, yeah, really hurt Barcelona, like Real Madrid suffered in the last years too. And yes, one month without Iniesta, he had an injury. Um, they were, yeah, they didn't play well. And even on last weekend when they drawed 1-1 at Real Sociedad, um, Enrique said that it was the worst match under his, un, under him. And I won't say that, that Barcelona is human now, um, cause for me they never were immortal or something, but, um, yeah, some teams know now how to beat them and are brave enough to do it. Yeah. I think that Sociedad, you mentioned that a little bit. Um, I read somewhere that Barcelona didn't have a shot for th- more, just over 38 minutes at one stage of the match. And that's astounding for a, for a side that has those front three and, and is renowned for its attacking football. Nils, before we let you go, can we can we get a quick prediction for the match from you? Of course. Um, in a classical, there are always goals, uh, so it's certain me that there's a match uh, 1-0 or something. Well, Madrid doesn't need a victory, and they are too intelligent, and, and they will avoid risks, so they will try to keep the, the, the six points or maybe get the nine points ahead. But I think it will be a 2-2 a draw. That was Niels Kern from RealTotal.ie. He sounds very excited about that game, doesn't he? Oh, yes. Are you as excited, Nico? I'm very excited about that game. Yeah? Yes. What's your prediction for it? Um, I think Real will win. One goal difference. 2-1. Okay. Yeah. Paddy, are you as... Are you excited, Paddy? Uh, sure, sure. Um, I think you, there'll be you, a few... You're not looking as excited. It's, you're rubbing your head there. I'm a bit worried about uh, you. It's just not my day. It's no reflection on Real Madrid or Barcelona. Is it, it the uh, rain outside? Maybe, you know. Yeah, I just got off a bit early this morning and didn't sleep so well last night. And you're worried Aww. about... Yeah, Aww. yeah. And you're worried about finding a vinyl record player That's, or something yeah, like that? Yeah, I mean, it's totally irrelevant to okay. today's podcast, of course. Yeah. But uh, anyway, my my prediction, I actually believe there'll be a few more goals than, than Nico. Well, I think... Barcelona will probably try and find another another cog, another gear, but I, I do believe that this will be a Real Madrid victory and probably a three one or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's a totally exciting game. It's whenever you watch it, you see that this is probably 
the best football match in the world with the two best teams at any given time uh, are often these two teams. Um, I don't know. I mean, some of the strongest, best memories I have of, of this match are the ones where it's a real, you know, stonking. Uh, I mean, like that that match when Ronaldinho basically took over the game mm-hmm. in, in Madrid and, you know, got a huge ovation from the crowd. So I'm actually hoping to see a, a real clinic put on by Madrid against Barcelona just for a, for a, a storyline. I really have no dog in the fight, so I, I wouldn't mind seeing a, a 4-1 or something like that. To Madrid? Sure. Yeah, why not? They're in the form. <laughs> I, I, I'm with you on that. I actually think Madrid are going to win too. I mean, that being said, this this game, you know, um, as you mentioned before, it's got a lot of stories over the years and form doesn't always come into it. Sure. You know, and we've seen at times when one has needed to win against the other to, to seal titles and things like that. And all the form has been with that, that side. And it, the game's just opened up and not in the best way um, for, the, for that side. So it's really hard to predict this game. Um, I remember a couple of years ago when they played, remember a matter of four times in about sort of six weeks or so. Mm-hmm. And that was just incredible. And um, yeah, it's a, it, is a, it is a hard game to go past in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of excitement. Now, early on Tuesday morning, news broke that a plane carrying the Chapecoense team had crashed in Colombia on its way to the Copa America match against Atletico Nacional in Medellin. Daniel Cadena Jornan from Mi Bundesliga, who's based in South America, has joined us on the line. Danny, what a terrible tragedy this all is. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the whole uh, Chapecoense tragedy has been uh, something, you know, really hard for uh, the whole football community. And here in South America, uh, well, not only have teams and leagues and players uh, well, show their condolences and everything, but uh, it's something that's really shook in the, the whole tournament in and of itself, the Copa Sudamericana, uh, because, uh, well, as you, you very well mentioned, they were on their way to play the final of the game against Atletico Nacional, the Colombian team, and, uh, well, the plane fell down, and, uh, well, it's, uh, it's been kind of surreal the whole, the whole way, um, Brazilian teams have had to react and how they've been so nice and, uh, open and, and, Shown great gestures of solidarity with uh, their fellow uh, member of the Syria Brazilian football. Uh, it's been really, it's really, really impressive the whole support that they've been receiving, and uh, it, it it really shows that uh, no matter what, in the end, the teams do stick together uh, when you know when the when the when something of this sort of uh, you know magnitude happens. Uh, for those who may not know uh, much about Chapecoense, could you maybe tell us a bit about the history of the club? Well, if you'd have to compare it to some other European team, it probably would have to be with RB Leipzig or the likes of Hoffenheim uh, because of the way they were, because of the fast promotion they've had throughout the Brazilian football ranks. They started down, down the fourth division and worked their way up for the, throughout the past five, six years. Uh, and they currently established themselves within the first division a couple of seasons ago. And uh, as of last season, they were well, winning already positions for international competition and well, reaching the final in South America. So it was really this, uh, this really nice story of a, of a team that came from really down and started, you know, developing young talents and doing everything according to the book. And, uh, well, then this happens and, uh, well, the script gets thrown away. So, uh, it is, it adds to the, to the tragedy to know that, uh, this team was, you know, one of those teams that, that promised to be, uh, that had a lot of promise within it and, uh, to become one of the big teams in the future. What's the future hold for the for the club now? Has there been any talks about how they how they plan to move on or anything like that? Well, they actually still mi- they're still missing uh, a league game 
that was supposed to take place this weekend. And, uh, well, the Federation is still trying to figure out what to do with that game. But uh, all in all, as I was saying, the support from Brazilian teams has been unanimous. It's been huge shows of solidarity, uh, even going the way of, of, of using the, the winter transfer window as an opportunity for them to rebuild with uh, loaned players for what's, rest, for what's left of the season. And uh, in the meantime, start figuring out how to reorganize the whole uh, squad situation. But yeah, every single team put their all their players at disposal of Chapacoense just to uh, make sure that they don't have to be disqualified or demoted from the first division of Brazilian football. So, uh, you know, they're going out of their way to, to really uh, make it happen that Chapacoense doesn't lose all the work done because of this accident. This is Matt, by the way. Um, I wanted to ask you, since you probably have uh, access to some media that maybe we don't get in the spotlight over here in Europe, there have to be some pretty uh, moving stories uh, behind some of these players who lost their lives in this plane crash. I wondered if if you might have um, one or two uh, guys who you could single out about um, sort of their history or, or what kind of um, way to put in context this tragedy. Well, uh, of course, every tragedy is, uh, you know, is disheartening, and this one is no different than that. And of course, there are a lot of stories. There are about 76 dead people, uh, 10 of them still in recovery, and international players like Charles Arandis uh, from the Chile national squad that's tweeting about one of his friends that was was also a member of the, of the squad, and he actually survived the crash. And well, he, he's he's one of the guys recovering. Thing is that you know the outcome isn't uh, as uh, hopeful as many would want or, or, or wish for for something of this you know uh, tragedy to happen. That was Danny Carina Jordan from Me Bundesliga. Um, more happier news comes in the form of MLS. If yeah, you're a Toronto, yeah, could, if you're could a hardly Toronto. be less happy. <laughs> if you're a Toronto fan. Sure, sure. I mean, it, yeah, the MLS Cup final, which, um, you know, in the grand tradition, uh, a North American tradition of uh, waiting for the Super Bowl. It doesn't actually happen for another, uh, I don't know, about a week and a half. It's not until the 10th of December, unfortunately. So... Plenty of time to hype it. Uh, actually, it has a really, really interesting matchup this year. It's, no one would have thought it would be Toronto against Seattle, would they? Oh, no doubt. These are basically two teams who have underachieved, you know, to a lesser or greater extent, pretty much their entire ex- existence in MLS. I mean, the Sounders have been around for about seven years. The TFC have been around about 10 years. Neither one has ever lived up to their potential. These are two of the best supported teams in the league. Seattle has the biggest attendance. Uh, TFC, even before they got into the league, sold an outrageous number of season tickets. So they're, they're really rabid fans. But neither one has ever won a title on an MLS Cup title. So um, to see them in the final is is really great, really great for the league. Probably will get a good television rating because, you know, December 10th, the home team is Toronto. So it's going to be freezing cold. There might even be snow. Fingers crossed, um, and it's also a really nice story because uh, you have some big, big name players. I mean, you have uh, Nicholas Hamadant. Yeah. Oh, and and absolutely, Sebastian Jovinko is mm-hmm. is the uh, probably the best player in MLS. I mean, it's a real proof that players who are not over the hill can really make a big impact coming from abroad into MLS. And I love the story as well um, of of the Sounders season, which is basically they were in real doldrums. They didn't know where they were going. Um, you know, they had Clint Dempsey's heart condition. You know, he had to sort of bow out for the season. The other really great storyline for the Sounders is that they have this coach, Greg Schmetzer, who came in uh, in, in mid-season after 
the Sounders fired their long-term coach, uh, Ziggy Schmidt, their only coach they had ever had in MLS. And, and the weird thing is they didn't go for an outside candidate. They didn't go for a big-name guy or, or an MLS veteran. They went with their assistant, Greg Schmetzer, who basically was the assistant the entire time Ziggy Schmidt was there. And before Ziggy Schmidt was there, he was the head coach in USL. So basically, he was pushed aside for Ziggy Schmidt you know, when they joined the league. And instead of walking off on a huff, he was like, no, I'll, I'll just I'll take second place. And then when they finally moved on, from Schmid, he's ready to take over. He looks like Greg from accounting, basically. He's, <laughs> he's sort of halfway bald, wears rimless glasses, and probably has a voice like this. I have no idea what his voice is like. I had to look him up, and I thought he was a shocking-looking character. But it turns out he's actually an, an ex-pro. He played in NASL in the indoor league, so he's, he's a real football man. And uh, ever since he took over, the Sounders have just killed it. They've, you know really battled their way through the playoffs and I think they have a really good chance despite being the away side to win MLS Cup so you're you're backing Seattle uh, it's, a, it's a more interesting story to me and also I'm not Canadian <laughs> very good Okay, that's all from us today. My thanks to Matt, Paddy, Nico, Nils, Daniel and our producer Damien. If you've anything to say about this week or would like to get in touch, you can hit us up on Facebook at OneFootball or you can get onto iTunes and let us know what you think. Thanks for listening.